Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with poet Laylee Long Soldier. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, Laylee. Yes, hi. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Oh, hello, Krista. <laughs> Thank you for making this trek. I'm sorry it was hard for you to get there. No, I'm sorry to you. I learned a lesson. We left at 1045 from Santa Fe, and I thought that was enough time, but oh my God. No. <laughs> it was like car accident, construction, and... Yeah. Well, I was out there um, a couple of years ago for the first time. So beautiful. But I did I did see how there's kind of one road <laughs> between yes, Santa Fe it. and out. <laughs> one road in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I'm so happy to have you. Do you have like a glass of water? Or do you need um, to take some breaths and <laughs> recover from your drive? You. Mm. I just got a big gulp. So. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Excellent. Um, do you have any questions of me before we start? Um, no, maybe just what the... Um, um, just as an yeah. overview. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, I mean, we're going to talk about things that you talk, think about and talk about all the time. So there won't be anything surprising. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about just, you know, you as a person, a writer, a poet, and your passions for language and identity. And then get into um, whereas... Mm-hmm. The book and and also the story about w- what it's responding to, um, and I'm and I'm going to ask you to read a little. Do you ha- did you, by the way did you get the message to bring the book or do you have the? I did. Yeah. Okay. So great. I, yeah. Yeah. So so if you feel uh, you know, it's a little tricky reading poetry, um, on on radio, long poems um, are hard. Uh, having said that, I I really do want to ask you to read thirty eight at the end, and just I just want to hear you read it, and it might oh, be okay. something that people would just be able to read online. Um, but I was going to say, if you felt as we we're talking, if there's something a poem that you would want to re- bring in, just feel free to do that. But otherwise, I may um, I will ask. I've got a couple of um, of poems that I I know I'd like you to read at the end, at latest. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I just poured my tea, too. Okay. So, Chris, are you okay for <laughs> levels? Great. We are all ready to go. Um, I don't even have to... I don't even have to ask her what she had for lunch. No? Okay. Great. <laughs> That's usually what we do to just uh, get levels. Um, okay. Well, I'm so happy to have you at the other end of the microphone. You know, something I didn't... I couldn't see anywhere in uh, in what I read of you is where you grew up. Oh, I grew up mostly in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Well, I should say I grew up in the Southwest. So um, <clears throat> my parents, my mom is from northern Idaho, mm-hmm. and my dad is from <clears throat> Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Oh, okay. Um, but when I was small, small, excuse me. It's okay. <clears throat> when, I was, uh, when I was really young, my mom went back to college 
And she went to Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. And then she got a, dro- a job with um, the Navajo tribe. Okay. Um, so we moved to the Four Corners area. Mm. And so, yeah, that's where I grew up and that's where I still am now. Okay. And um, was how would you describe the religious or spiritual back- background of your childhood? Um, how expansively understood? However you would look at that now. Uh, well, my, <clears throat> excuse me. When I was growing up, uh, my mom was a Baha'i. So mm. that, that formed a lot of um, my primary um, spiritual foundation mm-hmm. as a child. Um, and then as I got older, I think um, maybe in my interest in Lakota, my own culture. Right. Was she Lakota think, also, your mother? No, she is non-native. Oh, okay. So, um, and then I think as I got older and got more interested in um, Lakota culture, I think that's been also a big part of what um, what I value. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's something that I'm still learning about. I'm certainly no expert, but um, it is a part of who I am today now. So, so. Um, what, what year were you born in? I always hear you referred to as young. But I don't know what that I means. I know. Everybody says that I'm not. <laughs> okay, let's test this. What were you, when were you born? Do I have to say? <laughs> well, no, you don't. Okay. I was just going to, here's one, something I wanted to ask, though. A couple of years ago, I interviewed um, Sitting Bull's great-grandson. Ernie LaPointe, mm-hmm. and um, it was as, in, as when I was as it was as I was preparing for that interview that I first learned that um, that it wasn't until 1978 that the American Indian Religious Freedom Act uh, mm-hmm. gave the Lakota and other tribes the right to perform their sacred rituals and ceremonies. That these things had been decreed barbarous and mm-hmm. demoralizing. In 1883, right. in law, and so it, so that was interesting to talk to him and others about who essentially grew up with their with their ceremonies and rich, sacred rituals being illegal, and kind of mm-hmm. passed on furtively. But it seemed it occurs to me that you more or less grew up in the aftermath of that shift. Mm-hmm. Although probably when it was still in transition, I'm just curious about that. Um, if that's something you were aware of. Oh yeah, it's definitely something I've I've <clears throat> I've been aware of. I think um, for my generation, I, I can't speak for all of my generation, yeah, and no, I that's... cannot speak for all Lakota people, mm-hmm. but. Just from my personal experience, um, I've found even in my own family, um, my Lakota family is very diverse, you know, spiritually um, speaking. So I have Lakota family who is Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are NAC, which is um, Native American Church. Mm. Um, 
that's something that um, my grandma was a part of. Um, and then some of my family practice or they're more traditional. So um, me personally, personally, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a little looser maybe because I'm a poet or I don't know what, you know, I'm not terribly <laughs> religious yeah. or terribly strict in any sense of the word when it comes to religion. Yeah. Um, but so I'll go to things or I'll participate in things if they relate to family um, events. But um, certainly I, for me, it's like the more traditional teachings that are um, important to me, as I said before. Um, but even learning about those things um it's something that has come slowly because it's um uh you know you have to find the right people and yeah the right family members and who have that kind of knowledge yeah to share uh, and whereas i see in in my own family there's there's really the the influence of christianity and yeah. I certainly respect and love my family members who are um, Christian. But um, again, there's this, there's a great diversity even in our own communities. And, and I think that has a lot to do with um, the history, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So and people had to pray somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that Christian um, aspect of things is also part of that lineage of that history even if it's a nourishing thing for people now mm -hmm. hmm. um, so when I um, I've read other interviews you've given um, where you talk about and to me this also belongs perhaps in the category of the spiritual background of your childhood you talk about as a child how sound for you was a conduit for emotion, and that was both music and also words. Mm -hmm. Is, was that just part of you um, from early, early on? Oh, <laughs> so I don't know if um, that's necessarily a spiritual yeah. uh, thing, at least in my mind. Um, and I only say that because my mom was um, trained as a pianist. Mm -hmm. So um, I grew up with a piano in our house. Uh, one of the ways that she would spend time with me was um, to sit down and play piano with me. Mm -hmm. So she would take these very complex pieces and she would, for example, play the left, the left hand yeah. and I would play the right or we'd switch. And um, so that was... Um, <clears throat> really a part of my early, early childhood. And um, when I was left on my own to play the piano, not with my mom, um, I was kind of quirky, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of playing like whole pieces, um, I would sit down and just um, end up playing a particular phrase that really resonated mm. for me. And I would just play it over and over because there was something beautiful or something I, I got out of it hmm. emotionally. Hmm. Um, 
and something that I could communicate emotionally through a particular phrase or mm. a pattern and um, or a rhythm. <clears throat> and so as I got older, I played other instruments. I played yeah. um, violin, bass, guitar. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure I mastered any of them or got really good at any of them. And I think it's just because of that obsession with um, um, just sound in particular. Like I wasn't necessarily interested in reading um, long, you know, uh, written... Sheet music. Sheet music, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, for example, when I got into playing guitar, I and then I got into using pedals, oh my gosh, my... My whole world just exploded. So, <laughs> right. um, <clears throat> so it's been through sound. I always, I have always felt this uh, thing in sound that I think I can communicate emotionally mm-hmm. a little easier. Um, it's pure. It's a pure communication mm. for me. Mm. But. Um, I think when I started writing, um, it was surprisingly a, a good fit. Uh, I I never planned on writing really, but when I started studying it, um, I, you know, I I was able to use other parts of me that I'd never really used before, and, and it just it worked. So that's all I can say about that. But, it's funny the way you were just talking about how you were at the piano um, someplace you you talked about writing um, that you would pick up little words and phrases tinkering twirling investigating it sounds like the same activity that you started doing with words like sitting down yeah I suppose you know I suppose that's true I had never really thought about that Mm. but now that um, you say that I think it's true maybe in the sense that like sometimes um, sometimes I can think of certain pieces where a particular word is what I formed the whole piece around mm. because I love that word. I'm thinking of a piece called Chesapa, mm. and there's five sections in that in that poem. And the last section, um, towards the end of the poem, there's the word circuitous. Mm. <laughs> And I loved that word. I was just like, that is such a, like, it was just fascinating word to me. And some, and it's like, I got to this last section and I had to use it in some way. Like it just had to go in there. And so in some ways I almost developed the piece to, to lead to this Mm. little throne that I made for it. (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Do Do you have that poem? Um, yes, I do. Do you want to read it or read a bit of it? Or? Um, sure. It's kind of a long poem, so would you like me to read just that section? Yeah, why or? don't you just read that section? Okay. Since we've got that introduction. Let's see here. Just a second, sorry. Okay, so this is section 5, 
from Chesapa. Inside the wheels of wrists and hands, a white shore of book and shell. I kneel in the hairline light of kitchen and home, where I remember the curt shuttle of eyes down, eyes up, where I asked, are you looking at how I've become too? This one combs and places a clip just above her temple, sweeping back the curtain of why and how come. I kiss her head. I say, maybe you already know. Born in us, two of everything. As in, each born to our own crown, the highest part of the natural head. And each born to our own crown, a single power, our distinction. But I'm dragging myself, the other me, every strand up to the surface. I remember very little. So I plunge my ear into the hollow of a black horn, listen to it speak. Not one word sounds as before. Circuitous, this I know. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, tell me again what the title of the poem is. Chesapa, it's spelled H E. It's two words, yeah. H E and Sapa, S A P A. Uh huh. And, and what does mm-hmm. it mean? Um, that is the word in Lakota for um, Black Hills. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm glad I asked you to read that. Oh, thank you. Um, you were talking about, um, and then just demonstrating kind of working with one word and and really playing and delving with one word. I, I this is just a uh, an anecdote that you um, I can't remember if you wrote this or maybe it was a conversation you had with somebody else talking about um, having an email exchange with one of your professors, John Davis, about punctuation, mm-hmm. and that you spent. And in two hours discussing the comma. And that yeah. that was one reason you loved being a writer and doing what you do. And I, I also just, I thought that was a wonderful story because I'm also obsessed with commas. <laughs> yeah. I actually, uh, I ended up <clears throat> writing about that conversation in a piece. Um, it's, um, let's see. It's in a poem. Mm. Let's see here. Just a second. Um, I should know where it's at. This book is so new. Mm. (laughs) Don't worry. Um, Here we go. Okay. Sorry. But I ended up writing about that little conversation. I said, um, and this is John Davis from IAIA. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote, then a friend remarks, when we speak, comma, question marks, dashes, lines, little black dots, 
don't flash or jiggle in the air before us, comma. In truth, it's the rise and fall of the voice we must capture to mean a thing in writing. <sighs> Leaning his head toward a page with some vulnerable line, he adds, and isn't it interesting how a comma can tip a phrase into sentimentality? Mm. And I really like that. So I think from that conversation, I kind of, in this particular piece, I um, <clears throat> played with spelling the comma, spelling the comma out. Right. So right. instead, oh, of, instead of having the comma there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm very intrigued with the language that people use, that other people use when they describe you as a poet. And I wanted to read a little bit of it back to you and just, and wonder how this language, what these words mean to you. So in your, and this is, these are both sections from the Whiting Award citation. Um, Laylee Long Soldier is the poet architect, that's poet hyphen architect, in the arena of witness and longing. Um, I wonder, um, Witness and longing, are those words specifically, I mean, that's how somebody else has described you, but are those words meaningful for you? Do you know what they're getting at and, and, and how, what does that mean to you? Um, to me, I don't know, in some ways I think it's, uh, that's language that comes from an outward gaze. Mm-hmm. So it's from... Obviously, someone else looking at me, looking at my work and what they think I'm doing. Yeah. Um, the idea of the witness is not something that I sit down to the page with. Okay. I am not, I certainly, uh, I, I, I know it may be perceived that way um, by others, uh, the work that I, some of the work that I do. Um. But definitely when I sit down, I'm not mm, intentionally. Uh, right. You're not assuming the persona of the witness. Yeah. In any kind of conscious sure. way. Yeah. Yeah. What about um, longing? Th- what about longing? Longing, I'm not sure if, um, again, I don't know if that's a word I relate to. Yeah. Um, because longing for me conjures up feelings maybe of nostalgia, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. both of which are things that I try very hard to avoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but maybe there is a sense of longing in there that I haven't myself um, recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about what you avoid in the notion of nostalgia. Hmm. Um, well, let's say with, um, certain, well, let's say, uh, with the whereas, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. pieces, which are response to the national apology to Native Americans. So this is your, your collection of poems called whereas and so we'll we're, we'll talk about these as we go on but also but i just want <clears throat> to just ex- explain if somebody's listening and you know just um 
like just tuning in or something, that that this would be, and this was in response to uh, this national apology, which was an official government document, and every sentence, <laughs> every every phrase started formally with whereas. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that, some of the specifics a little more <clears throat> later, but just on the subject of nostalgia. Yeah. Let's say with those pieces, um, I, I've often said that I felt like this was a project of constraints. So when I sat down to work on this response, uh, there were a lot of constraints that I um, placed on myself. And one of those was that I wanted uh, all of the pieces to stay to be written, number one, through first person, mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but number two, um, within all of them had to be within living memory. Um, I did not want to jump back a hundred years. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, so often that's really a uh, temptation yeah. to do when it comes to... Um, anything that has to do with native issues, yeah. um, native rights or history. Um, and so I really wanted it to be grounded in the now, at least within my own lifetime. And I wanted it as much as, po I wanted as much as possible to avoid this sort of nostalgic portraiture mm -hmm. of um, a native life or life of a, my life. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of silly to call it a native life, but, you know. Um, I think also, um, I remember I used, in grad school, um, I had this tendency to, um, well, let me put it this way. In undergrad, I had, part of my training was really a focus on imagery on the image. Um, and when I went to grad school, I had this um, habit of really focusing on imagery and for some reason also trying to um, make the piece beautiful in a way, hmm. make the language um, beautiful and to inhabit the these particular images or um, specifics of a, of a of an experience, and I had a professor in grad school, and this was really profound to me. She said, "You know, you have a tendency to do this. You want to make your lines beautiful," and she said, "I think that I think that you don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> you don't have to do that." And she said, "I." I'm encouraging you to let go of that need um, um, because I don't want your work to lose its teeth. That's really? what she said. Huh. So, and that really was a profound moment for me. Um, so I think that that's also, as far as craft, maybe a way that I have grounded myself in avoiding a sense of, Nostal nostalgia, yeah, which I associate with the overly beautiful as well. 
in some ways. Hmm. Yeah. I don't. It's 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 well. So there, another another line of of what was written about you in this award citation, or was that the book, um, the Whereas book, was um, it says a fearless polyphonic crossing of cultures and languages in the service of both tenderness and trenchant critique. And I love that juxtaposition. And you know, just following on what you just said, it's it's craft, but it's also an ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also agree with the aspect of critique. And I think it has to do with some something with my personality, mm-hmm. too. Uh, it's not completely an intellectual um, drive. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't come necessarily from intellect. It comes from an emotional center. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm saying this sort of with a smile on my face because uh, I'm looking at through a lot of my poems and a lot of them are actually not not just the whereas pieces that respond to the national apology, but a lot of my pieces are response um, to encounters or language. Um, um, ideas that don't quite sit right with me. Mm-hmm. And I think in person I'm very um, reserved. A lot of times I'm very shy, like it's painfully difficult to talk to people, <laughs> new people sometimes, <laughs> yeah. or even to deal with any kind of like uh, uncomfortable dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I'll get really mad and I'll go home and write about it, you know. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so a lot of my pieces are um, those kinds of those kinds of moments where, um, yeah, there's it's a critique of something that I I may have um, heard uh, somebody express or or what have you. Um, and yeah, so mm-hmm. that that's at the at the center of a lot of what I do. Although, although as in in these lines, leavened by a tenderness that is kind of just a way of being. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Mm. I, I mean, I appreciate that hearing that feedback. Mm. You know, um, I think that. Certainly, I, I try my best to be, to offer my own truth as best as I can on the page. But um, I don't think that truth has to be hurtful yeah. either, right? Yeah. I You know, you were talking about circuitous and tenderness actually is a word that I am very drawn mm-hmm. to. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like it's a word we don't use very often. Mm-hmm. Which which also helps, so it's not all weighted down with, um, you know, connotations or or right. freighted. It's not politicized, and right. and it's kind of countercultural. You know, tenderness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lovely word, and it has a lovely. To me, it sends a lovely feeling out with it. That's right. Yeah, I think. Um, I actually, I do really appreciate that word because I feel, 
I've gone to readings where I, uh, people have introduced me, and I know that they're doing it. Well, they'll introduce work on these introductions with with um, all the best intentions, and and it's done in a manner of generosity. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but they'll introduce me as like a fierce this fierce uh, voice or fearless, fierce. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I get up and I'm just like, oh my God, how am I going to live up to that? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah. and and I think also there's this um, expectation that we, when we are also um, writing or working in a way that may be political, um, there's an expectation that we take on that those qualities. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but I don't are... always feel it myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, to me, this also is an expression, perhaps, of something... One of your former teachers, Erica Wirth, is that right? Is mm-hmm. that how you say her name? Um, mm-hmm. She wrote this piece about the fourth wave in Native American writing. Mm-hmm. Um poetry, but not just poetry. Um, and I mean, I think this kind of touches on your idea about not being nostalgic and the tradition of that um, um, for understandable reason. And she's like, the first wave is anything written by a Native person after 1492. So this this goes way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I don't know, the third wave was right before the millennium. It was people like Sherman Alexie. But then... Um, she identifies you and describes something called the fourth wave. And she says, and, and I'm wondering also if, you know, she, and I, to me this feels like a generational shift that is not just about Native American writers, right? She says, mm-hmm. uh, um, exhausted by politics, this, this, mm-hmm. this generation, um, mm-hmm. including literary politics, just want to write. Um, mm-hmm. Kind mm-hmm. of, she said this, Issues the first, second, third, and third waves were inve- were so invested and only brought out tired sighs. So I just I wonder how you mm. see how do you locate yourself and other and your peers in that kind of framework in terms of something a sensibility that's emerging. I mean I think it's so interesting because it's not something that I'd been exposed to before that idea. Right. Um, this this is a hard question for me, mm. <laughs> only because um, if I answer it, I don't want to be dismissive of right. Erica's and essay. I don't, I'm not asking you to do that either. Yeah, so I certainly don't want to be dismissive of sort of the structure that she's outlined and how she sees things. Yeah, um, I think. I've read that essay, and I think she has some interesting points. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll just speak for myself. Yeah. I know that I did come from... Uh, so I don't want to narrow it down. To, you know, I don't want it to be too narrow, but I came, I gradu- I came out of the Institute of American Indian Arts mm-hmm. in undergrad. And around the time that I was studying there actually just before there was a wave of really strong writers that came out of that school. Um, 
so there's like Sherwin Bitsui, um, Orlando White, Jennifer Forrester, mm-hmm. um, Gigi Okpik. Uh, so sort of like a whole wave of really powerful energy. I came a few years after them, um, but they were. Cer- I certainly I I consider they have become my peers and mm. people that I talk to mm-hmm. um, about aspects of poetry. Um, <clears throat> I felt like there was a a common en- energy um, amongst those writers, um, and no, I I think. Maybe Erica has a point. They didn't feel, um, I don't think, I felt like a certain um, creative freedom among them. Like they didn't feel constrained or hemmed in to write about any particular thing. Um, it was, it was something, there was something really new and vibrant in um, their work. Yeah, I mean, she um, uses language like it's, um, and she's not actually saying that this wasn't there in the previous generations, but it, mm-hmm. she's kind of gone a step further in finding a free, also using the word freedom, fun, big, beautiful, poetic license that invites an Indian audience, but also audiences of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think what's funny is like, um, I remember even a few moments on my own when um, when I started this response to the national apology and a few yeah. other pieces like 38 that's another piece um that were sort of more directly dealing with more with political substance yeah or subject matter that was more um overt um and i remember w- wondering I wonder what my peers will think, you know, um, it wasn't something that I felt like, um, a lot of my friends were doing, like taking on, but that is not to say that their work wasn't relevant in a a political sense. It was just not quite as direct and, you know, like I was direct taking a congressional document head on, you know. So there were a few moments when I, I just questioned, I said, I, w- I wonder what they'll think about it. But um, by and large, um, most of my peers of that fourth wave, if you will, have been very supportive, um, very helpful. Most of them, a lot of them have read read my manuscript um, before Where, I published whereas it. The Whereas manuscript? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And have given feedback. Was this um, just published? Was this... Um, book, it is 2017. Yeah, the book is actually not out until March 7th. Oh, oh okay. So it'll be a little oh, couple weeks, I think. I'm so glad that I'm talking to you now. Um, well, so let's let's talk about that. And, um, you know, one, one thing that helped me think about how you come at this is this idea of, um, you know, that you, of dual citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it seems to me this work takes on both sides of you. If if I don't know if that's the right way to say it, like you you've written, mm-hmm. I am a citizen of the United States, and an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, meaning I'm a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. And in this dual citizenship, I must work, I must eat, I must art, I must mother, I must friend, I must listen, I must observe constantly, I must live. Hmm. Um, tell me how you... So, so this Congressional Resolution of Apology to Native Americans happened in 2009... I had never mm-hmm. heard of it until I sat down to prepare to interview you. And I don't mm-hmm. think you heard about it at the time. Is that right? How did you start? How did you, mm-hmm. how did you come to be trained? How did your attention come to be trained on this? Uh, yeah. Um, I hadn't heard about the apology until months later. I think it was, it was signed in December 2009. And it was sometime in the spring, I think, of... 2010 I heard about it several months later and I was personally really surprised when I first heard about it that I hadn't heard about it before because I felt like I was usually really uh, up on native uh, news you know um, because I'm always reading articles and so on and so Yeah, I was surprised that I hadn't heard about it. And part of the reason I hadn't is because it was so quiet. Yeah. Um, I know that it was a grand gesture, but, um, yeah, there really, it was so quiet and there really was not a lot of risk taken in how it was um, delivered. And so, um, yeah, it actually, sorry, go go ahead. No, go on. No. Well, I mean, I was saying it was, enacted as part of the Defense Appropriations Act of 2009, which is a little confusing um, and not necessarily where we would look. And, um, um, you know, it's interesting to me because there's a lot of, I feel like just recently in American culture, we've started to entertain some new kinds of language like truth and reconciliation. And is that Mm -hmm. something we might think about? Mm -hmm. with Native Americans, with slavery, um, you know, or or reparations, um, um, or you know, words like redemption, um, and and then there is this. Here's tucked away is this um, this thing that this resolution that was passed but never really never spoken aloud, right? Never really offered mm-hmm. publicly, right? I mean, I'm just going to read a little bit because because probably other people haven't heard of it either. This is just the beginning. <laughs> to acknowledge a long history of official depredations and ill-conceived policies by the federal government regarding Indian tribes and offer an apology to all Native peoples on behalf of the United States. Um, it, it, it talks about the fact that Native peoples inhabited the present-day United States for thousands of years, before the arrival of people of European descent, that they honored, protected, and stewarded this land we cherish. And then it says, whereas, whereas the arrival of Europeans in North America opened a new chapter 
the mm-hmm. history of Native peoples, and then it <laughs> continues to whereas, 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 and mm-hmm. um, it's not all. There's an attempt to point at the redemptive aspects of mm-hmm. Indian tribes' relationships with, um, you know, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, um, but then it goes into whereas, you know, the federal government violating mm-hmm. treaties, moving citizens away from their traditional homelands. People mm-hmm. suffering and perishing, armed confrontations and massacres, um, the the um, condemnation of traditions, beliefs, and customs, and the boarding school scandal. Whereas, mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so you yeah. dis- so you discovered this, and um, yeah, what was your reaction? I th- I think, well, first of all, what. what motivated me to even respond to the apology was the delivery so that's the Uh heart of it Uh or I should say the non delivery of the apology yeah um but then I went online and I read the apology and then I was like oh my gosh the the language it's so careful (laughs) yeah so carefully crafted I mean my goodness these guys are poets like (laughs) I mean, very astute and very aware of what what um, each phrase. The, how how do I say it? Uh, you know, what each phrase may carry. Yeah. The implication of each phrase. Yeah. So even the, the phrasing of um, the arrival of Europeans opened a new chapter. Yeah. For Native people, that's crazy. It wasn't opening a new chapter, you know. That's, yeah, that's almost poetry. I mean, that's a very interesting way to, to look at what happened, right? Mm. Um, so, and going further into the document, um, you know, just the idea. For example, um, they never mentioned genocide, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, things are phrased as conflicts. Um, lives were taken on both sides and, you know, things like that. Both took innocent lives, including those Uh of women and children. I I should tell you, I grew up in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Um, um, So actually surrounded by this history, but pretty much unaware of it, right? Mm -hmm. Not really taught it. Um, I mean, it's where the Trail of Tears <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I mean, they do say, you know, the infamous trail of tears and long walk. But, yeah, you're right. It's very spare and careful. <sighs> right. Um, I think I was watching, um, you know, I mentioned this to a group of students recently um, at the University of Washington. Um but I'll mention it here as well. I was watching this really nice video, um, a little talk by Faith Spotted Eagle. I don't know if you know Mm-mm. who that is. Mm-mm. She's um, Dakota, uh, and she was the only Native woman to receive an elect- a vote from the Electoral College in this last um, Two- 2016 election. election? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, she's an amazing, um, beautiful woman, a wonderful speaker, too. 
Um, and so anyway, I was watching this video, this little talk she was giving, and she was talking about the idea of discussing um, history, uh, discussing some of these traumas that have happened. Yeah. Um, and she was saying um, for Native people... Uh, Talking about these things, it's important to process of healing. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think it's not just healing. I would add to that a sense of justice, mm-hmm. you know, being heard. Um, and then on the other hand, she said for non-Native people, um, hearing and listening to um, these narratives these histories and engaging in a conversation that is not about guilt and it's not about shame it is about in her words I think she said um, freedom from denial Mm -hmm. Uh, it allows a liberation and she said once we can start that process you know on one hand people start healing they start to feel a sense of justice being heard on the other hand people this other side they are sort of stripping away these veils of denial then we can begin to actually come together and meet on common ground right yeah so i think that that's really uh, maybe what was important to me in this work you know and i didn't want to jump back a hundred or 150, 200 years. Uh, I didn't want to jump back to Wounded Knee or Sand Creek. I wanted to say this is what it's like here and now, you know, in my own lifetime. This is not history. This is not old history. It's a present. It's present Mm -hmm. in my life, in my child's life, my daughter's life, right? Um, Someone recently asked me, um, it was a little bit embarrassing um they pointed out how many pieces include my daughter <laughs> in them and I was like oh my gosh that's so true but you know I was a little embarrassed just because I didn't want to seem obsessed but um I think that that was important to me as well um it's, that, that it's not it's not of, just not the past it's and it's and it's right. not it's the present and the that's future right. right it's the it's the world we're that's creating right. exactly uh-huh so, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, here, and so, you know, I feel like we're talking about something very specific, but we're, we're speaking in a moment of time of incredible fracture. Um, and, and there's a lot of apologizing that hasn't happened, and, and we're actually building up a lot of things that are going to have to be apologized for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so one thing I find really interesting that you do in Whereas is um, it's not just that you're not t- only talking about history. You're, you're also bringing in human intelligence from life about what an apology is and, mm-hmm. and how when apologies are done well. I mean, and this is things that neuroscientists are studying too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just what you just said, I mean, you, they can now watch someone give a real apology and have it received and have it start changing things in their brain. 
Um, really? Yeah. I didn't. But know it that. has to be sincere. <laughs> but it has to be sincere, right? Uh-huh. And there's there's eye yes. contact, and so you register right. that you register that. Anyway, so you wrote in the beginning, at the, actually the beginning of your response, whereas when offered an apology, I watch each movement, the shoulders high or folding, tilt of the head, both eyes down or straight through. Um, I don't know. I hope I, I list, right. I list for cracks in knuckles. I listen for cracks in knuckles or in the word choice. What is it that I want to feel? And mind you, I feel from the senses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> th- this feels exactly. like really important deliberation. Like this isn't this is something we need to learn to do together, right? right. As people, as a people, <laughs> in that part of your citizenship, right? You know, um, yeah. I think in writing all of this, I certainly don't have any answers. I mean, if it's something that scientists are studying, you know, what makes an apology effective? Um, obviously, it's something that's um, complex. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I cannot, um, I don't have, I can't delineate what would make um, an apology to Native people, you know, the exact things that would make it effective. Yeah. Um, but I can say certainly, yeah, there's the physical presence, the energy that is important. Um, but on a national scale, I mean, it's also not just a personal apology. So there's things that, um, are bigger than us, bigger than having just, let's say, you know, a family member sit down next to me and apologize. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. At a national level, there's there's a lot more that goes with it, right? Um, so I've told this story before, but I feel like it's something I always go back to because it's so it's so um, it's so simple, but um, so real. Um, when I was um, writing this response, uh, I started researching a lot of other apologies around the world, mm. um, national apologies. One of the apologies that I was really interested in was the one in Canada. Yeah, um, to the First Nations people. To the First Nations, right. Yeah. Um, on the boarding school, uh, yeah. the residential schools for for what happened there and the taking of their children and so on. Um, And that apology was read out loud. Uh, It was like a verbal speech. It was uh, transmitted through um, their national national television. And it had a very different quality. There was a very different quality to the language and the pacing of that apology. Um, but one of the things, um, I did too, I remember I was watching some videos. There was this video that was made in the aftermath of that Canadian apology. And, um, there was, uh, the documentary was sort of interviewing, um, different, um, Canadian people, but especially, uh, people of the first nations, 
um, to ask them if they felt like anything had changed yeah. uh, since that apology. And um, it seemed like for the most part, uh, most people said things had not really changed since the apology. Uh, as far as like uh, relationships, uh, the, the political climate and what have you. So um, that was interesting to me. But I always remember there was this one little uh, short interview with uh, an elder, uh, mm -hmm. an elder um, Native woman. And I can't remember her tribe, but <clears throat> in any case... Um, so they asked her if things had changed and she said, in her opinion, no, things had really not really changed. But she said in just very, very simple terms, um, she said, you know, if you want things to change, all you have to do is begin by honoring your treaties hmm. and doing what you said you would do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's so simple. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. You can apologize for, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you can apologize, you know, your whole life, but it has to be followed up with just action, with just yeah. saying what you'll do what you said you would do. Yeah. And I thought, wow, how would things change here in the U.S. if our treaties we went back to them and really honored and respected what was outlined. Would that even be possible? Yeah. But I think there has to be a, a, a kind of trust building. Right. In order for any, any kind of apology to be effective, whether it's interpersonal or at a national level. So. I mean, one of the things you pointed out, you have pointed out is that, um, and this was President Obama who signed this, um, but it was signed on a weekend. It was not read aloud. There was no ceremony, and mm. there were no tribal leaders invited to witness it. Um, right. And that ceremony is an important way in tribal culture to make something meaningful or to signify that something has meaning. I think it's important in tribal culture, but I think we have ceremonies all the time yeah. at the White House. Yeah, yeah. it's a human. <laughs> it's a human thing. Yeah, too. right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, seems like there's all kinds of ceremonies going on over yeah. there at the White House, <laughs> like you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think it's a human thing, an American thing. It's all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but. Yeah, it would have been nice maybe if, I think for such a historic moment, if there would have been some kind of, uh, some kind of reception at least yeah. or something. <laughs> Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, and of course, while you were writing this, um, Standing Rock is in the public eye in the public imagination, this kind of ongoing drama. Um, one thing you've said about that is how intrigued you were about the community 
taking the tribal community taking a position that that of remaining prayerful of having mm-hmm. that be ceremony no weapons mm-hmm. um and in some ways i think struggling with people who were coming to be in solidarity um but that being the position that the standing rock elders took mm-hmm. right and what should I say about that? <laughs> well, I'm cu- I'm just curious about how you are watching that, have watched that, um, and how does it flow into this other exchange you were ha- you've been having by way of just thought and poetry um, with the larger picture of uh, the <clears throat> this history and this um, struggle still to reconcile this history. Um, it's kind of funny. Um, yesterday, I was just, I just had an interview um, with someone else um, talking about process mm-hmm. uh, in my writing, um, and we were talking about this idea of prayer. Um, and so, it's something that I'm. I want to be really careful. Um, in talking about, because I certainly don't want to come across like uh, some new agey type person or uh, some guru or something. But I think that um, I have thought a lot about um, both at a community level and on a personal level, this idea of prayer being central to um, an ability to enact even to take, how do I call, what, how would I say it? I almost want to say um, a prayerful inaction. Uh, I don't know. No, those are not the right words. But um, what I, I think what I've been thinking about a lot is at Standing Rock, um, my friends, I have a few friends there and um, their families are there and so on. Uh, and how firm that community has been on, on keeping prayer as central to everything that they do, mm. right? Mm. Um, and I think that that's something very beautiful and unique that Standing Rock has offered to the world of um, resistance. Hmm. And that's not to say that other movements have not had prayer in at, at the center of what they do either. Um, no, but, but you're right. It's, and it's, I mean, even that word resistance, which is, which has very much entered the lexicon right now, and not very often I'm not hearing it attached to prayer um, mm-hmm. in other contexts. I mean, the other thing about that is that it was, it was really in reading you saying this about the community taking a position and remaining prayerful. Um, it's I realized it was true and that it had come through in what I knew, but it's not prioritized in like coverage right it's not Mm. the headline um and so i think it's so important for you 
to say that, like to to speak that for people to hear that too, and be looking for that because um, uh, Standing Rock is going to be with us, right? And I think that yeah, every um, movement and every community, um, they have their own. Uh, they have their own um, culture, their own values that sort of propel the action that they take, right, to yeah. create change. Yeah. yeah. But I think that is really something unique to Lakota culture, mm-hmm. and I don't know how. I don't know if many people are aware of, aware that, of that. How yeah. important prayer is to Lakota life, mm-hmm. but I always get a kick out of it. I had a nephew who was. Um, complaining to one of my cousins, my sister, and he was saying, oh, it's hard to be Lakota. All we do is pray, pray, pray (laughs) all the time. (laughs) So it's like, and and yeah, I just got a kick out of that. So, you know, it is a very real thing. Yeah. And so it is something that um, I have really appreciated and loved Mm. um, seeing how, how that, really um, influenced every step that the community took, I felt. And it's something that I've heard from people who were who went up to Standing Rock. It was why I think so many people had um, a good experience there because there was that prayer and that sense of connection, that community. Um, and and all different. kinds of religious figures, all kinds of religious leaders also gathering around with their prayers. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of brings me back to that juxtaposition we talked about a little while ago and of between tenderness and trenchant critique. <laughs> you know, that mm. ethos. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on page 85 in Whereas, I can't remember if this is... You, this is one thing people talk about about your poetry also, is this is very playful. Um, and mm-hmm. playful also in how you arrange words on the page a lot of times. Mm-hmm. There's this page, um, which it's not even a poem you could really read. Oh, you can read it. But it's, it's I want to know what it is. Uh, it's, it's words like spiritual, creator, belief, Customs, mm. traditions, children, families, practices, languages. Mm-hmm. A couple of those words. Well, no, actually, they're not. Spiritual is repeated twice. Customs mm-hmm. is repeated twice. There's mm. belief and there's beliefs. <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> what is I, that? I have I a know. feeling that it reflects something of what you just said about Lakota life and prayer being at the center of it. I, I'd love for you to take me inside that. Um, yeah. Well, n- no, not exactly. Okay. <laughs> this is actually a, a, the piece that you're referring to on page 85. Um, it's actually connected to the piece you'll see that starts on page... 84? Um, 82 oh. and 83. Okay. Um, so you'll see I page 82, I start the piece. I say, whereas, yeah. re-solutions an act of analyzing and restructuring complex 
ideas into simpler ones, so I place a black bracket on either side of an idea. I coordinate to safety mm. away mm. from national re-solution, the threat of reductive thinking. Mm. And then on the next page, I have two sections from the National Apology, the document itself. Oh, with brackets where these words belong? Right. I see So that. I have removed mm-hmm. from that national document, from that languaging, yeah. that congressional languaging, I have removed their hold on our spiritual life, mm. our beliefs, mm. creator, customs, families, children, and so on. And so... Um, I took those things and I put them an additional page away <laughs> yeah, to create some distance from that. And I know it's kind of maybe hard Actually, I'm, to make the connection. Well, it may be hard for somebody to hear, understand if they're listening to this. I'm really glad you explained it to me. It's interesting also to see. So you've basically written, so the words spiritual and belief, creator, spiritual customs, traditions, children, families, practices, languages are gone and there are brackets. And then you find those lords two pages later. But it's interesting how it reads without them too. Whereas native peoples are people with a deep and abiding (laughs) brackets in the bracket. And for millennia, native peoples have maintained a powerful bracket connection to this land as evidenced by their brackets and link and legends mm-hmm. I mean you know I um, I don't know how you feel about the language of like Native American spirituality but I, f- I find it dangerous the way it get, or kind of I worry about it being thrown around yeah, that doesn't mean a thing, actually. Doesn't mean a thing, yeah. No. I mean, listen, the thing is, is, um, and I've said this in the, in the preface, um, or in the introduction to uh, the whereas section, mm-hmm. there are over 560 federally recognized tribes. Oh. And that's just federally recognized. There are um, many more that are not recognized who are... Many of them right now are are seeking recognition, but the point is, is um, all of us are different, yeah. and all of us have um, um, beliefs and ways that are particular to who we are as a people. So you know, Lakota um, beliefs are very different than, let's say, where I live here in the Southwest from Pueblo. Um, some of my friends from Santa Clara Pueblo, let's say, or Hopi friends or Dene friends. I mean, all of us, our, our traditions and our ways are all so, so different, you know, our stories. And, and they're also so connected to the land yeah. that we come from. There's, there's not a separation. It's connected. Yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> 
Native American spirituality right. is just an awful term. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's scary. It's so broad and yeah. Um, yeah, abstract. There was so um, you could. Sorry, uh, go on. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it's so abstract that yeah. you could almost insert anything yeah. into that bracket, right? Yeah, and it could be so, very, very superficial and out of context. Right. I think one of the most striking just sentences that I've read or heard in the context of what's going on at Standing Rock is, uh, and I should have written down, but one of the elders or maybe the, maybe the chief saying, you know, water is not a resource. It is the source of life. Mm-hmm. And that is a statement of fact, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just we never, it's not a way we say it or think about it. And mm-hmm. it's such an, the whole drama really is such an interesting uh, I mean, it's so many things, but in, in you know, in, the, in if you look at that sentence, it's um, an amazing testament to the power of how we formulate and understand, you know, something like what is water, right? <laughs> and how a word like resource that gets thrown around, and I throw it around all the time too, like crazy. It's like one of the big words now can be, you know can dehumanize us and our and 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 be a way into into belittling yeah the source of life (laughs) yeah i mean you know all of these things for first of all i really i i feel like i have to i'll constantly put out disclaimers Mm -hmm. Um, before I ever talk on some of these issues, because, um, you know, I, I just, I'm so wary of, of sounding like I'm talking for, for all Lakota people and, and all native people. And I'm certainly not an expert Mm -hmm. on any of these issues, but it does make me think about, um, uh, a a show that I'm working on right now with two other Lakota artists um, so there are two sisters, Mary Bordeaux and Clementine Bordeaux. Uh, and the three of us are working on a show called Midakuye Oyasin. And, um, and that is, um, in our language, translated into, it means we are all related. Mm. Um, it's a phrase that is, I think, part of what interests us in d- exploring this is it's a phrase um, that is very central to our worldview. Um, this idea of being related and connection, but it's also a phrase that is sometimes um, um, adopted and maybe not completely understood yeah. by other people. So what happens is sometimes people create. Um, a familiar, they try to create an, a familiarity that they haven't always earned, right? Right. So we're sort right. of exploring this idea of relationship, what it is to be a relative, what it is to see others as related to you. And that includes not just people um, mm. in Lakota view, but mm. also the world around us. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a cliche 
to call the land or earth Mother Earth, but that is actually that is something that we say in our language. And but it is again, it goes back to this idea of relationship. Um, and seeing it in that way, I mean, even just for example, um, one of my friends posted something really funny on uh, um, Facebook this morning, I think, and she was uh, reminding people in their, um, she, what was it, I think, Red Willow? This is a season for getting Red Willow, and she was saying, now everybody be careful and don't, you know, take more than you need mm. and leave the plant, um, allow the plant to stay alive for the next, um, the mm. next year. Right. Yeah. So it is always like, even just things like that, you know, like little Facebook posts or what have you. I mean, it's still alive, this awareness. Right. Um, the sensibility. That, a sensibility. Mm-hmm of connection, uh, you don't just go and you don't see the red willow as a, um, a resource. Right. There you are. Right. Something you just take from. Right. It is something you take from, but you do it respectfully. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And the same applies, of course, to water and this source of life. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> I wonder. Um, you mentioned a, a little while ago that you're um, that you do talk about your daughter a lot in, in your poetry. And, I know. Um, <laughs> no, and I I'm like I talk about my, my children in my show. Um, uh, I I wondered if you would read, um, and and maybe this will like put put you at ease about because I'm not I'm, you're not speaking for you're just speaking for yourself, right? But 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 a. Yeah. But a single voice of integrity and searching is a window in, right, to a world mm-hmm. in a way that often asking somebody to represent a group, in fact, is not. Um, there's this part in whereas, there's the part that I didn't write the page, whereas mm-hmm. her birth signaled the responsibility as mother to teach what it is to be Lakota. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do you want to read that? Just the, like the... Oh, okay. Let's see. Let me find it. <clears throat> Did you just want me to read the first stanza? Or? Oh, yes. <clears throat> uh, uh, yeah, the first stanza. Okay. Or maybe I'll read the first two. They That's seem kind of connected. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whereas, her birth signaled the responsibility as a mother to teach what it is to be Lakota. Therein the question, what did I know about being Lakota? Signaled panic, blood rush, my embarrassment. What did I know of our language but pieces? Would I teach her to be pieces? Until a friend comforted, don't worry, you and your daughter will learn together. Today, she stood sunlight on her shoulders, lean and straight, to share a song in Dene, her father's language. 
To sing, she motions simultaneously with her hands. I watch her be in multiple musics. At a ceremony, to honor the Diné Nation's first poet laureate, a speaker explains that each people has been given their own language to reach with. I understand reaching as active, emotion. He offers a prayer and introduction in heritage language. I listen as I reach my eyes into my hands, my hands onto my lap, my lap as the quiet page I hold my daughter in. I rock her back, forward, to the rise of other conversations. Mm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I've totally lost track of time. I want to see, how are we doing? We're okay. So, so this, I'm, this, I've, I'm, I'm completely immersed. I don't usually lose track of time. Um, so I know <laughs> this is intense. So I'm just, just a few more minutes, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, I, something that intrigued me, you know, I, the question I'm always kind of pursuing, um, and the way each individual life is its own way into this question is, you know, what what does it mean to be human? Um, and I also know that that every one of our sense of that is all constantly evolving across life. But when I there are some things you've said about writing that I just find so intriguing. Um, I feel like the way you've written about them is how writing forms you as a human being. Like you wrote somewhere, mm. um, it's an endeavor I grew into and now provides a solid, deep joy. Perhaps this joy from writing is seated comfortably in my core because of the li- life lesson it's provided. Writing has shown me what happens with patience. Hmm. And someplace else you wrote, the surprises I've experienced in my writing pr- practice have dislodged me from curiosity into love. <laughs> I wonder if you could say a little bit about those qualities and as a way into the question of what you've, what you're learning about what it means to be human through the life mm-hmm. you lead. Hmm. Well, I think Right. Um, I think the writing practice, um, going back to what we talked about earlier, it was something that I had not expected to be a good fit. Um, I I had never thought, oh, I want to be a writer one day. Um, But I went to the Institute of American Indian Arts and... um, they didn't have a music program. That's what I wanted to study. Oh, right. <laughs> but I really wanted to go to school there. So I felt like the next best thing was to study writing. And um, it was not easy. A lot of, uh, I would say, the first three, three and a half years, Uh, I wrote some really, really, really bad, bad, bad poems, like really dry. It took me a long time. Um, But I think it was that patience that is something I've learned through writing, a sense of patience um, and the reward Mm -hmm. that comes from that. 
um, even I'm just now thinking about the piece 38. You, I think you mentioned it yes. um, earlier. But that piece, for example, took me, I want to say maybe a year and a half to two years to write. Um, but it was important to me. Yeah. It was an important piece. It's kind of, a, it's an epic piece. I mean, I don't know how many words it is, but it's it's epic. It's like six pages long. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's a long piece. I want to ask you to read it in a minute. Would you but would you just briefly say what what's happening in that piece? In 38? Yeah. Mhm. Uh just briefly in 38 it's uh written to and for the Dakota 38 who were um 38 Dakota men who were hung. Um, during the president, under the orders of um, President Abraham Lincoln, um, as a result of the Sioux uprising, um, which came at a time when Dakota people, their um, territory, their land was um, um, reduced. It was getting smaller and smaller, yeah. uh, and finally down to a something like a 10-mile tract. And the people, Dakota people, did not have um, hunting rights beyond that. Uh, and basically, um, and they had no uh, store credit with the traders, and so they were basically starving. So there was an uprising. And um, as a result, um, these 38 men were hung, and then Dakota people were um, moved um west to South Dakota mm-hmm. area um, in different um, basically they lost their land this was the, the largest region. legal mass execution in US history and yes and that's right. it happened the same week that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation yes that's this right history we don't know that's right or we don't teach um, yeah so so you were just talking so this took a long this was this this emerged through patience writing all of this yeah mm-hmm. uh just that um yeah absolutely I, I just think what the excerpt you read um explains it best i think that i've learned through writing um the reward and the joy that comes out of just being really patient with a piece mm-hmm. and patient with yourself. I think, um, at least for me, the imagination uh, is something that I have to really respect, like its own little person yeah. in me. <laughs> yeah. And so I can't demand too much of it. Sometimes I have to let it, let it uh, take a rest mm-hmm. and then come back. And be in conversation with it again. So, um, but it's a beautiful process that mm. I've learned, you know, through writing. Mm. Um, yeah. I, is there anything else you want to say about that or about being human or you being don't have human? To. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge question. Yeah, it is a big question. Um, I think no. 
I mean, I think it's maybe too big yeah. of a question. <laughs> I think, well, anyway, I think you did actually, you did, you did address it in a beautiful way. So I'd love for you to, I think maybe let's read 38 last. Cause it's very long, but um, your, your voice will be tired. Yeah. But would you read, I was looking at page 64, mm-hmm. whereas I did not desire in childhood. And also page 65, which was your father's... Um, which was another, you know, part of the way you also reflected on what an apology is. Um, right. Is about your experience uh, of, a, of a really big apology that came from your father. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think that we don't often enough value the intelligence we have about something like an apology even if we're thinking about that as public work, um, the intelligence that we have from our personal experiences, we don't understand that that translates to. So anyway, those were the two. I was wondering if you'd read them yeah, and then read sure. 38. And then you could say a little bit about each of them if you want to before you start. Okay. Well, yeah, I actually would, um, I might mention that the piece about my father, the apology he gave me, I really do actually consider that almost the heart of this whole response. Mm. And I think um, I think the reason is, I think it was the, the most uh, effective and the most miraculous um, apology that I'd ever received in my life. I think, um, now I should clarify before I say anything that my dad and I have a pretty good relationship now yeah we you know keep in touch and visit and uh, text and call each other but when I was younger he wasn't around a lot and he had a lot going on in his life yeah so um that created a great emptiness and you know all kinds of stuff yeah um so I had a lot of a lot of stuff I was carrying around with me and um, when I was in my 20s, he came to visit one time and unexpectedly, I didn't even know he was going to apologize. I mean, I didn't know, but unexpectedly he was sitting at breakfast with me and apologized uh, for not being there. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something in the way he said it. He cried when he said it and I could feel it you know I could physically feel that he meant it and really and I can say this to this day in that moment all of it was gone like all that stuff I had been carrying around it just it was gone it was lifted Hmm. and I feel in many ways we started new Hmm. from that point Hmm. on Hmm. you know I have I really have not had the need to go back and rehash things with him and and so on. You know, we started mm. a, a from that place forward, we've um, known each other in a different way. Mm. So um, anyway, read, that's... Yeah. You want to read yeah. that one first then? Read, read that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whereas... I heard a noise I thought was a sneeze. 
At the breakfast table, pushing eggs around my plate, I wondered if he liked my cooking, thought about what to talk about. He pinched his fingers to the bridge of his nose, squeezed his eyes. He wiped. I often say he was a terrible drinker when I was a child. I'm not afraid to say it because he's different now. Sober, attentive, showered, eating. But in my childhood, when things were different, I rolled onto my side, my hands together as if to pray, locked between my knees. When things were different, I lay there for long hours, my face to the wall, blank. My eyes left me, my soldiers, my two scouts to the unseen. And because language is the immaterial, I never could speak about the missing. So perhaps I cried for the invisible, what I could not see doubly. What is it to wish for the absence of nothing? There at the breakfast table, as an adult, wondering what to talk about if he liked my cooking, pushing the invisible to the plate's edge, I looked up to see he hadn't sneezed. He was crying. I'd never heard him cry, didn't recognize the symptoms. I turned to him when I heard him say, I'm sorry, I wasn't there, sorry for many things. Like that, curative voicing, an opened bundle, or medicine, or birthday wishing, my hand to his shoulder. It's okay, I said. It's over now, I meant it, because of our faces, blankly, because of a lifelong stare down, because of centuries in sorry. Thank you. Um, shall I read 64? Have I worn you out? You can say, you can throw in the towel and say this is too <laughs> No, I'm okay. fine. Okay. I'm doing, I might take a sip here of my yeah, do. big gulp. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. Okay. Whereas, excuse me, whereas I did not desire in childhood to be a part of this, but desired most of all to be a part, a piece combined with others to make up a whole, some but not all of something, in Lakota, it's hanke, a piece or part of anything. Like the creek trickling behind my aunt's house, 
where uncle built her a bridge to cross from bank to bank, not far from a grassy clearing with three teepees, a place to gather. She holds three-day workshops on traditional arts. Young people from Kyle and Potato Creek arrive one by one, eager to participate. They have the option, my auntie says, to sleep at home and return in the morning, but by and large, they'll stay in camp even during South Dakota winters. The comfort of being together I think of plains winds, snow drifts, ice and limbs, the exposure, and when I slide my arms into a wool coat and put my hand to the doorknob, ready to brave the sub-zero dark, someone says, be careful out there, always consider the snow your friend, think badly of it, snow will burn you. I walk out remembering that for millennia, we have called ourselves Lakota, meaning friend or ally. This relationship to the other, some but not all, still our peace to everything. Hmm. So I think too, you know, I, I hadn't realized it, but <clears throat> I think this piece is sort of connected to what we were talking about earlier, this idea of relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like even seeing, not seeing water as a resource, but yeah. it is a source of life. Right. And even this is true. Um, uh, one time I, you know, I was told, don't think you have to see the snow as your friend. Right. Yeah. You can't think badly of it. Right. So it's always like, Walking in this world, understanding your relationship to to others. Yeah, yeah. Even the way you italicize part and participate, it was so mm. it just jumped off the page for me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it too much to ask you to read the thirty-eight? Is it too much? It's long. Mm. No, it's not too much, but okay. um. I'll just warn you, I think I've done this, I timed it before, it's <clears throat> it's like um, maybe around 14 minutes, so. Are we, we have something on our website, which we call the Poetry Radio Project, mm-hmm. and um, uh, yeah, so this wouldn't be on the air because it's too long, but the the poetry, I mean, I've interviewed, you know, many poets, um, Mary Oliver and David White and Naomi Shihab Nye are some of the most recent ones. and um, But then also, in the course of all my conversations across the years, a lot of people have poetry with them, right? Or they bring poetry, or there's a poem that they have memorized because it's like their companion through life. <laughs> and so mm. on this Poetry Radio Project, we've, we collect all of that. And I, I think this would be a wonderful one to add to that. So that's how it would oh. be. And we'd get permission from your publisher and all of that. Okay. Um, Um, okay. This is such a, this is just between you and me, but this is such a funny piece to read out loud. I'm actually, um, a little self-conscious because I read this, um, 
at uh, a university in New York, mm-hmm. and I looked out into the audience and I saw some of the um, grad students falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our listeners are awake. I promise. <laughs> So I think that um, I realized I, I have not read it mm-hmm. publicly since then. Okay. But I realized it's like, uh, unless you're patient yeah. or realize that there's more to it, it, it's like a really dry piece, you know, but it's intentionally. Well, there's a lot <clears throat> going on. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I did, when I read it, it's not dry. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to, do you want to pause for a minute? Take a drink? Yeah, I'm yeah. Take and you a can drink pause. Just... You can also take pause and take a drink during while you read it, and we can cut that out later. Mm. Okay, great. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm actually going to walk away for a couple of minutes, but you can start whenever you want, and I'll be back. Okay, great. Thirty-eight. Here, the sentence will be respected. I will compose each sentence with care by minding what the rules of writing dictate. For example, all sentences will begin with capital letters. Likewise, the history of the sentence will be honored by ending each one with appropriate punctuation, such as a period or question mark, thus bringing the idea to momentary completion. You may like to know I do not consider this a, quote, creative piece. I do not regard this as a poem of great imagination or a work of fiction. Also, historical events will not be dramatized for a, quote, interesting read. Therefore, I feel most responsible to the orderly sentence, conveyor of thought. That said, I will begin. You may or may not have heard about the Dakota 38. If this is the first time you've heard of it, you might wonder, what is the Dakota 38? The Dakota 38... Excuse me. No, don't worry. That's okay. The Dakota 38 refers to 38 Dakota men who were executed by hanging under orders from President Abraham Lincoln. To date, this is the largest, quote, legal mass execution in U.S. history. The hanging took place on December 26, 1862, the day after Christmas. This was the same week that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. In the preceding sentence, I italicize, quote, same week, for emphasis, 
There was a movie titled Lincoln about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. The signing of the Emancipation Proclamation was included in the film Lincoln. The hanging of the Dakota 38 was not. In any case, you might be asking, why were 38 Dakota men hung? As a side note, the past tense of hang is hung, but when referring to the capital punishment of hanging, the correct past tense is hanged. So it's possible that you're asking, why were 38 Dakota men hanged? They were hanged for the Sioux Uprising. I want to tell you about the Sioux Uprising, but I don't know where to begin. I may jump around and details will not unfold in chronological order. Keep in mind, I am not a historian. So I will recount facts as best as I can, given limited resources and understanding. Before Minnesota was a state, the Minnesota region, generally speaking, was the traditional homeland for Dakota, Anishinaabeg, and Ho-Chunk people. During the 1800s, when the U.S. expanded territory, they, quote, purchased land from the Dakota people, as well as the other tribes. But another way to understand that sort of, quote, purchase is Dakota leaders ceded land to the U.S. government in exchange for money or goods, but most importantly, the safety of their people. Some say that Dakota people did not understand the terms they were entering or they never would have agreed. Even others call the entire negotiation trickery. But to make whatever it was official and binding, the U.S. government drew up an initial treaty. This treaty was later replaced by another, more convenient treaty, and then another. I've had difficulty unraveling the terms of these treaties, given the legal speak and congressional language. As treaties were abrogated, broken, and new treaties were drafted, one after another, the new treaties often referenced old defunct treaties, and it is a muddy switchback trail to follow. Although I often feel lost on this trail, I know I am not alone. However, as best as I can put the facts together, in 1851, Dakota Territory, territory was contained to a 12-mile by 150-mile long strip along the Minnesota River. But just seven years later, in 1858, the northern portion was ceded or taken, and the southern portion was convenient 
Excuse me. I'm going to take a drink. Just okay, okay. It's really, it's really terrific to listen to. I mean, hard to listen to, but... <laughs> <clears throat> and, you know, we're here in Minnesota. We're based in Minnesota. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. Yes. Is... Wonderful. Mm. <clears throat> okay, let's see here. Mm-hmm. But just seven years later... In 1858, the northern portion was ceded or taken, and the southern portion was conveniently allotted, which reduced Dakota land to a stark 10-mile tract. These amended and broken treaties are often referred to as the Minnesota Treaties. The word Minnesota comes from mni, which means water, and sota, which means turbid. Synonyms for turbid include muddy, unclear, cloudy, confused, and smoky. Everything is in the language we use. For example, a treaty is essentially a contract between two sovereign nations. The U.S. treaties with the Dakota Nation were legal contracts that promised money. It could be said this money was payment for the land the, the Dakota ceded, for living within assigned boundaries, a reservation, and for lin- relinquishing... Uh, I need to do that one over. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Not to worry. Okay. It could be said, this money was payment for the land the Dakota ceded, for living within assigned boundaries, a reservation, and for relinquishing rights to their vast hunting territory, which in turn made Dakota people dependent on other means to survive. Money. The previous sentence is circular, akin to so many aspects of history. As you may have guessed by now, the money promised in the turbid treaties did not make it into the hands of Dakota people. In addition, local government traders would not offer credit to Indians to purchase food or goods. Without money, store credit, or rights to hunt beyond their 10-mile tract of land, Dakota people began to starve. The Dakota people were starving. The Dakota people starved. In the preceding sentence, the word starved does not need italics for emphasis. One should read, the Dakota people starved, as a straightforward and plainly stated fact. As a result, and without other options but to continue to starve, Dakota people retaliated. Dakota warriors organized, struck out, and killed settlers and traders. This revolt is called the Sioux Uprising. Eventually, 
the U.S. cavalry came to Minnesota to confront the uprising. More than 1,000 Dakota people were sent to prison. As already mentioned, 38 Dakota men were subsequently hanged. After the hanging, those 1,000 Dakota prisoners were released. However, as further consequence, what remained of Dakota territory, excuse me, However, as further consequence, what remained of Dakota territory in Minnesota was dissolved, stolen. The Dakota people had no land to return to. This means they were exiled. Homeless, the Dakota people of Minnesota were relocated or forced onto reservations in South Dakota and Nebraska. Now, every year, a group called the Dakota 38 plus two riders conduct a memorial horse ride from Lower Brule, South Dakota to Mankato, Minnesota. The memorial riders travel 325 miles on horseback for 18 days, sometimes through sub-zero blizzards. They conclude their journey on December 26, the day of the hanging. Memorials help focus our memory on particular people or events. Often, memorials come in the forms of plaques, statues, or gravestones. The memorial for the Dakota 38 is not an object inscribed with words but an act. Yet I started this piece because I was interested in writing about grasses. So there is one other event to include, although it's not in chronological order, and we must backtrack a little. When the Dakota people were starving, as you may remember, Government traders would not extend store credit to Indians. One trader named Andrew Myrick is famous for his refusal to provide credit to Dakota people by saying, if they are hungry, let them eat grass. There are variations of Myrick's words, but they are all something to that effect. When settlers and traders were were killed during the Sioux uprising, one of the first to be executed by the Dakota was Andrew Myrick. When my, when, excuse me. Hmm. I'm going to read the previous. um, Okay. Sentence again? Yeah. When settlers and traders were killed during the Sioux uprising, one of the first to be executed by the Dakota was Andrew Myrick. When Myrick's body was found, his mouth was stuffed with grass. 
I am inclined to call this act by the Dakota warriors a poem. There's irony in their poem. There was no text. Real poems do not really require words. I have italicized the previous sentence to indicate inner dia- dialogue. Now I'm going to redo that. Sorry. Yeah. I have italicized the previous sentence to indicate inner dialogue, a revealing moment. But on second thought, the words, let them eat grass, click the gears of the poem into place. So we could also say language and word choice are crucial to the poem's work. Things are circling back again. Sometimes when in a circle, if I wish to exit, I must leap. And let the body swing from the platform out to the grasses. Well, Lely, um thank you so much. Thank you for um, for what you do and who you are. And I'm just so delighted to have this introduction to you and grateful for the time you took today. Well, thank you, too. And thank you for waiting. I'm sorry about the no um, traffic. Worth, it was worth waiting for. <laughs> okay. I know. I keep thinking about your question about being human, and I wish I had some. No, you did. You actually profound. answered it. You don't realize it, but you answered it. It was fine. Okay. It was good. Yeah. Okay. It's more, you know, it's a ridiculous question, but it's like, where do you start answering it is, is the best any of us can do. Yeah. And And you did that. So yeah. it was great. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. You know, you... one little... Yeah, oh, go, go on. No, go on. No, I don't want to take too much more time. I know it's been a long time, but I was just thinking one little tiny thing, something I've been ranting about lately. Yeah. Um, I was thinking a lot about like um, tribal names, Yeah. Uh, names of tribes. And a lot of the way I've... I It seems like a lot of the way that linguists and um, what are they called? Anthropologists Mm -hmm. will translate tribal names. Um, A lot of times they'll say it means the people, right? It translates as the people. And one thing I have really taken issue with is the use of that article, the, in Uh, front of people. uh. And I'm like, why do... That's so westernized, so such a Western view. It's like they weren't saying they're the people in their <laughs> language. There's no article before that, you know, there's no article the yeah. before their name. They're saying they're people yeah. like you. They're humans. <laughs> like, they're human. Yeah. We're just people, right? You're you right. know. And so ultimately, I think maybe... That's something I think I've been thinking about it. Mm. It all boils down to, mm. right? Mm. But lovely. I'm glad you. I'm glad you had it back. <laughs> um, well, we'll let you know what's happening with this, and um, 
And if we have any questions, or if you have any questions, you, you, um, you'll you know where to find me. So thank you okay, again great. so much. I hope your drive home is better than your drive there. Oh, thank you. Me too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Albuquerque is yeah. getting crazy. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Okay. All right. Bye.